Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And just remember that in this podcast, we do discuss research, but each horse is an individual. So make sure that you get professional advice before implementing anything we discuss. Today, we're looking at a brilliant paper that automates an elite equestrian rider. And that's by W. Lampard et al. And it was a 2016 study that looked at eight international um, riders. That was six men and two women. And they were of Olympic equestrian disciplines. So they were elite riders that were um, basically had had success within their careers. And it looked to find out what really drove them to that. What were the key factors behind it? So they participated in a semi-structured interview and they found that there were a number of key factors that implemented whether they would be an elite equestrian or not that they all shared. But I think what really stood out to me, Nancy, is there's quite a few factors that they all shared, but it seemed to me it was really, you know, down to environment and personality, you know, and like in environment, whether they had the opportunity within that environment as well. Yeah, that makes so much sense because about 10 years ago, I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell called um, Outliers, and he talks about a 10,000-hour principle where for anyone to become an expert at something, they put in thereabouts 10,000 hours of practice um, to achieve their you know, expertise rating. Well, he also breaks that book down into two parts. His first couple of chapters are opportunity. And then his last four chapters say are on legacy and support and parental support and peer support and being good at something and feeling like you're good at it. And then also having fun at it where you continue to do it and it doesn't become like work. So I think that was so important that not this is a non-horse book, but it's a motivation book on how people become experts and succeed. And there's so many parallels with this research paper and other psychology books and papers on the topic. That's really interesting because in this research paper, they mention, and it is in regards to general um, sports, it's not looking like the research they refer to isn't looking at the equestrian um, because there is so much research that still needs to be done on that. But in regards to general sports, they mention another paper that said there was like a 10-year rule as a guideline that you needed like 10 years to really hone your craft or to become good at it and a certain number of hours even within that time that you need to really focus on. And I thought it was really interesting because some of the key factors that were in this were, as I had said, seemed to be really based around opportunity. And I think that is hard for a lot of people because thinking about rising clubs that I've been to and you know different pony clubs and things like, the opportunity just isn't there to reach that elite status like when you look at the factors that really helped these equestrians 
One of them was observing elite risers and how often do you really get to observe it? You know, I think that might be something that you would see more of, Nancy, in the racing industry because, you know, you're actually going to the competition. But, you know, how does one get to that point? Like if you're a young kid and you want to get into a discipline, you know, you really do need access to a coach. You need to have those kind of motivators, like seeing other people doing it and succeed um, and access to the horses, because that's a huge part of equestrian sports that I think is really overlooked is the fact that it's not just you that has to train really hard and do your best, but you're relying on like, essentially, if you view it as the tool you're using, you know, it's depending on the day it may not work if if a horse isn't feeling its best if it's not going to perform its best you know there's only so much you can do and I think there's a huge amount of responsibility that comes with having to make sure you and the horse is up to scratch mm-hmm. so I I did think it's just you know a lot of these things were really interesting that they all had the same motivators but is it possible for just anyone to get to that point. I, I think it is, but you have to make sacrifices. I think location is a big part of it. In the US, if you're on the East Coast and have access to high level competition and to be around barns where your elite riders are, you might have access to more clinics that these riders put on. Um, a lot of times in the Midwest, they'll come through once a year or twice a year, but we have a harsher winter season, so um, it's very limited. And then also um, that access to quality horses. So many of these riders had a talented pony that taught them in their early years. And so early development I think is one of the keys. I mean, it's fun to you. It's excitement when you're a kid. And then all of a sudden, one day you realize how that you're good at this and you have a knack for it. Well, then you also need good role models, parental support, um, you know, and to win. I mean, if you continue not to place that's kind of a downer and that may be adversity that you just don't have that drive to get beyond. So I think it's willingness to cope with adversity uh, when there's competition failures or, um, you know, something happens, maybe you need more money. So you have to sell a horse that is very talented. So Um, I just think it's a lot of life lessons that um, some of us, you you don't have the drive to really dig down and and dig your heels in to tough it through. And motivation, I think, plays an absolutely huge role. Yeah, and I think about, you know, having that drive, it really is that competitive edge that are in some people's personalities and it's just not within other people's personalities. Mm -hmm. And what I really liked about this research was that it actually had quotes from um, the athletes that they interviewed. And one said like, what was their drive for doing it? And they said, winning, that's all it is. I like to win. And I thought that was brilliant. (laughs) That's being honest. 
<laughs> yeah. But then there was another person that had this quote, once a mistake, second time stupid, third time unforgivable. And I was like, wow, that is a driven person. Like, And it came up again in another part of the research that you know something all these people had was the drive to learn from what they were doing, you know, to observe others and say, I need to imitate that. I need to replicate it. You know, I did it this way. It didn't work. We need to learn and, you know, constantly push that status quo. Yeah. I remember when we interviewed Kate Finner, um, she had been a um, Rolex rider in, in high level polo in Singapore and dressage rider and so much experience and she had won a freestyle competition in dressage and one of the remarks of the judge was like oh your horse is so well put together but on the inside it's like a bomb is gonna go off and that just really um made her rethink her whole um I guess, career. And she came to the United States and was got into more training and more training where she could learn to relax these horses on the inside, as well as have them ready to compete on the outside. Now that was giving up leaving a country where she was uh, doing quite well, she was able to give that up. And I think sometimes it's uh, your pursuit and your drive to get it right that makes all the difference. Yeah. And one of the other things that they looked at was um, being honest and responsible. And I suppose like that ties in with that, you know, like taking responsibility for actions and decisions for you and the horse and deciding to follow it, even set it in it, following your gut yeah. and thinking, okay, no, we need to change you know, it may look on the outside like it's working, but we're realizing now that, you know, we're only a short way away from it breaking down yeah. and kind of being able. I think that's impressive, too. If you've spent years and years honing this skill, being able to deconstruct it and start again, like that's an incredible attribute for anyone to have, you know, not to have too much pride to hold on to a certain way you've been doing things. Well, and remember in that interview, she also said she moved horses 1,600 kilometers to get closer to her university where she was, you know, studying equine behavior. And I looked up 1,600 kilometers and it's like a thousand miles. That's not an easy move. That would be someone in the Midwest USA moving to Colorado. You know, yeah. so that's not easy to do in five horses. So it's a commitment, I think. And things don't come easy sometimes, but you're able to keep going. And a lot of that for these elite riders was winning and financial success. So they not only were riding and competing, but they were making a business out of it. And they had a good business model and they 
you know, were it was working for them. And I think so much of the time we think, oh, you just get good horses and you become a good rider. But you also have to have a business sense and you have to treat it like a business. And sometimes that's riding on days you don't really feel like riding. But um, anyway, I thought that was a surprising element of it. They called it the spirit of entrepreneurial success. So I thought, well, that that's something I might not have researched. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, it just seemed to even though there's so many factors, and they lay it out really nicely in the table, a couple of different tables. So if you do look up this research, you don't have to read the whole paper after listening to the podcast, you can just look at the tables Mm -hmm. that break it down nicely. But they did say in conclusion that there didn't seem to be a singular or obvious pathway to success because even though these eight people that got into Olympic level all shared similar key factors and how they were successful, none of them necessarily took the same pathways to getting there. And there was a variation in their ages as well and when they managed to achieve what they did. So I think that's a nice thing to, you know, just remember that it's not too late to get started into something either, especially when it comes to like horse riding. Cause you know, we talked about in the first podcast about rider personality, which is linked to this paper as well, because Inga Wolfram is an author on this paper and she was an author on that paper in the first podcast, but it really is something that you can do into your later years. And we see that like people will ride until they're much older whereas we've talked about before you know your elite athletes in other sports they just tend to burn out sooner you know their body just can't keep doing it yeah and also with motivation being such a big factor I have another book that I would highly recommend and it's how Good Riders Get Good by Denny Emerson. And that kind of talks along the same lines as this research paper. And it also gives you advice how to achieve those benchmarks. And one of my motivational type of things that I do, because having a farm, there's always fence to fix or grass to cut or hay to bring in. It seems like there's always something I can do uh, work-wise. So what I always tend to do is put working with the group of horses for that day, I do it first thing. And then the rest of my day, I can go ahead and, and get done. If I do my work first, I'm too tired to really pull a horse out of the field and work with them. So um, I always stay motivated from the iPhone horse apps and they have them for Android as well. And one of my favorite ones is not even an equestrian centered app. It's a hiking app, but it gives you a GPS and it tracks how far you go and uh, what your pace is. And then it logs it so I can kind of look at an entire period of time to see how often I've worked with the horse and what our duration of exercise was, what we did and all that. And it's called Gaia, G-A-I-A. 
and you can download an initial version for free. The only time you need to upgrade to a membership or subscription is if you're going um, off sell tower, you know, like going into a very rugged part of the country where you don't have cell service. And then uh, you can download a map to your phone and have access to it. So, and I never do the subscription. I think I did it the first year and then I realized, well, I really didn't need it. And it's such a helpful tool. And then the second one that I've tried is Equilab and it will actually break down your workouts into walk, trot, canter, and how long you did each, and it will graph it, and it will also tell you an estimate of how many calories your horse has burnt, and so it's kind of a helpful tool. However, I did have issues with it wanting to come on at, at times that I wasn't using it, and it yeah. would drain my iPhone battery down very quickly, so um, I just use the Gaia because it's so easy and it doesn't drain my battery. So amazing. Yeah. Um, I thought as well. So to, did you have any other points on this research paper, Nancy? Are um, you happy for me to just dip in on last week's? Yeah, you can go ahead. I think we've covered it. If anyone has any, um, you know, questions, I'll put the link of the paper or the reference to the paper on the homepage, which is through Anchor. And then also we have a Facebook page. We'll put it on there and you'll be able to look up the research. Perfect. So on last week's um, podcast, we talked about how music affects nocturnal behavior in horses. And we did have a listener that um, wrote in with a really nice comment and said what type of music they using their stable so on instagram they're called positive equine and her name is aileen and she's from waterford in ireland originally but now living in calgary and she's a student equine body worker so i just wanted to give a shout out to aileen and she said the podcast is awesome love to get the lowdown on research but often don't get time to sit down and read articles so i really appreciate you both pulling this podcast together we really appreciate everyone that listens me and auntie always say we're surprised every week so and um, thank you for tuning in but she also said that being in calgary the horses in her stable have no choice but to listen to country western music so she was really glad to hear that that was audibly appealing for them that's awesome and then i had a message on facebook from someone who said that her horse kicked the stall anytime she played Christian rock. She went to country and the horse is completely fine. And I have a little uh, report that um, Kate had mentioned that maybe by blaring the music, I was creating that or conditioning my horse to anticipate the fireworks. So last week I went out and turned the music up and sure enough, he started to kind of circle in his stall like he does on July 4th. So I think I have conditioned that to the point he was waiting for a firework to go off and none came. So now I know, well, I won't be blaring that music. I'll have it anywhere from 20 to 60 decibels and um, all should be well, but I'll have to test it on July 4th. 
really interesting though that was a great a great bit of research as well because it is something that people can easily implement you know without um worrying about impinging welfare and things like that so I tend to blast that music anyway. I get into my music, as you can tell. And so I'm going to have to to bring it down a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> just reel it in a small bit. Yeah. <laughs> so. well, perfect. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you do want to get in touch or you have any research you want us to cover, then you can do that on the Anchor FM. You can message us through there and you can support the podcast as well. And of course, you can also get us on Facebook and on Instagram. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Kate. And we'll see you next week. Perfect. Take care. Bye. Bye bye.